RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. in this episode to discuss the new development bank, the NDB, we have the Chief of Compliance at the NDB, Dr. Srinivas Yanamandra, and John McKendrick QC. John joins us to share his wealth of experience in multilateral development banks. He is one of the sanctions appeal officers at the Caribbean Development Bank and has done a lot of work in the Inter-American Development Bank, both of which have episodes in this series. John, Welcome. Good afternoon, Alice. It's good to be with you as well. And Srinivas, you are a qualified chartered accountant in India and have over 20 years' experience in the banking and financial sector, specifically in relation to regulatory matters, including being a fellow of the UK's International Compliance Association and a certified US anti-money laundering specialist. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, and thank you, Alice, for the introduction. Hi, John. Srinivas, how has your background, specifically your regulatory focus, shaped the perspective that you bring to your role as the Chief of Compliance at the NDB? There are two aspects to this experience that I need to mention. One, my academic qualification, starting as a chartered accounting, and then summed up in my research that I have pursued as a part of my doctoral course from the Manchester Business School. And my core area of the focus is financial regulation. And I have focused on the crisis and the post-regulatory reforms of East Asian countries that have faced the crisis in 1997. So that has given some sort of background about the institutional requirements in order to deal with regulatory matters, especially when it comes to the governance, risk management, and compliance. And once this new development bank has been established in 2015, I have been following up with this institution in terms of the mandate, in terms of the typical governance structure that it has. And it is one of the institutions that I wanted to share my experience with. And that's why I landed up in the bank in 2017. And it's a kind of match of my experience versus the bank that has been established from one of the countries like of which I come from. Fantastic. Looking deeper into the new development bank, very generally, what is it and what does it do? So the new development bank, as the name stands, is a newly established multilateral development bank. I think this is one of the historical movements which we are in that we have seen the rise of or the establishment of two new multilateral development banks that two headquartered in China. One of them is the New Development Bank, which is headquartered in Shanghai. It is promoted by the BRICS member countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So there is a popular way of 
calling the bank as the BRICS bank, but actually, if you go with the articles of agreement, the BRICS countries hold 55% membership, whereas the other part of the membership is open to any other UN bodies or any other nation which is having its membership in the United Nations. And one of the fantastic and the beautiful aspect of this NDB is that none of the member countries have any kind of a veto power in the governance structure. What about the kinds of projects and work that it gets involved in? What has it done so far? Basically, the bank is into what we call as infrastructure and sustainable development focused projects. We link to both uh, the entities that are in the BRICS countries. As per the articles of agreement, we can also link to the emerging market and developing countries. And our focus is primarily high quality, environmentally friendly, and financially viable projects. And generally, the kind of projects which we have done, if you go through, the profile of the projects is primarily into the businesses of clean energy, transportation, urban infrastructure and development, and social infrastructure. And the kind of entities that we deal are both the sovereign entities and the entities which have got the sovereign guarantee. Also, we have done very few private sector operations as well. So this is the broad profile of the bank's lending portfolio. Thank you, Srinivas. What are the differences between the new development bank and what we might think of as the more traditional multilateral development banks? While some of the differences that we are talking may generally be considered as something that challenging kind of thing, but this needs to be looked into from the perspective of the purpose of establishing this bank. The BRICS countries generally represent 33% of the world's GDP, and they also represent the aspirations of 45% of the total world population. Before the establishment of this bank, this proportion of representation has not received a fair amount of representation in the institutional structures of the existing multilateral development banks. So this bank has come out of that aspiration, and it is one of the first banks which is basically representing a South-South cooperation without having any of the Western countries as one of the members. The other unique characteristic of this bank is that none of the members have any kind of a veto voting power. So the decisions are taken by all the member countries together. There is a kind of a clean slate with which we have started our operations right from the setting up of the procedures to the decision-making processes and also the way we do the project appraisals and the way we interact with our member countries. So these are some of the unique characteristics of this new development bank. Thank you, Srinivas. And John, what about from the external perspective? What are the unique aspects that you see? Well, one of the most unusual aspects about the NDB is its focus on the major income countries. Traditionally, of course, we've had the World Bank and then we've had the four regional development banks focus heavily on their regional aspirations. The African Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The NDB has a particular focus, which is not geographical, and some of that is probably born from the response of the multilateral development banks to the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. So it's very interesting to see this quite specific geopolitical and economic response focusing on the middle-income countries and taking a slightly different approach and certainly, it will be very interesting to hear from Srinivas about some of the aspirations and approaches of the NDB as a non-geographical NDB, which is, to some extent, quite different. Of course, there are the smaller NDBs, like the Caribbean Development Bank, which have more 
intrinsically geographical focus, but the NDB is quite unusual in that regard. I would like to add, if I may, I think John has made a good comparison about the difference between NDB and also the regional development banks. The bank has a hundred billion US dollars, and the subscriber capital of the bank is about fifty billion US dollars, of which the paid-in capital is about ten billion dollars. The reason why I'm mentioning this fact is that going by the sheer composition of the quantum of the capital, NDB ranks in one of the largest capitalized multilateral development banks. And also, if you take the ratio of the paid-in capital to the subscriber capital, at 20% of the paid-in capital to subscriber capital, this is one of the largest commitments that any member countries have devoted to the establishment of an institution of like nature. That's a very useful comparator to bear in mind, Shrinivas. to the Compliance Investigations Department, this series is focused quite heavily on how these operate and how they are different and the same. So Srinivas, how does the NDB's Compliance Investigations Department operate? I need to begin with a comparison with the way normally these compliance and investigation departments are structured in the existing MDBs. Usually we see the compliance and investigations are operating under the existing MDBs and the two vice presidencies separately. One of the vice presidencies which we commonly see is the vice presidency of integrity, a different vice presidency, title ethics and business conduct. So these are two distinct uh, vice presidencies. Now, given the nature of the NDB, which is still in fancy, we have clubbed these two vice presidencies, which is basically integrity and ethics and business conduct. And these are now headed by the, the compliance uh, head. And these take into account all the responsibilities that these two different vice presidencies in other MDBs cater to. Now, if we consider what are those functions, I generally consider these as three important ones. One is anti-corruption, integrity-related functions. The other one is anti-money laundering-related functions. And the third and the important one is the business conduct, which is relating to the staff's code of conduct, as well as the code of conduct for the board officials. This is the core mandate of the division. And even within the NTP, we had an occasion to review our organization structures. And as recently as December 2020, we had made some of the changes the way we function within the compliance division. Earlier, we used to report to the president. Now, this functioning has been a little bit elevated to the board level. So we now report functionally to the board, but also administratively to the president. So this is the broad way in which we cater to the different functions. Thank you, Srinivas. And John, in terms of the landscape into which the NDB came, what did that look like? And how do you see that as having impacted the way that the NDB developed these functions? Thank you, Alice. Well, it's important to recognise that the NDBs, certainly in respect of the more historic and older ones, have had to develop their compliance and investigation approach to fit what is the wider regulatory and legal context that's developed certainly in the last 30 to 35 years. And that must be seen in a number of broad and different streams. There has been much greater focus since the 1980s on policies and procedures regarding anti-money laundering. The Financial Action Task Force, which was born in the late 1980s, has placed major obligations on 
uh, jurisdictions and territories to have in place effective anti-money laundering and then eventually terrorist financing policies. We have seen in uh, national jurisdictions a much greater growth of anti-bribery laws and we are also seeing a continued effort in many different areas of international regulation like anti-slavery policies. And we'll probably come back to this issue. There is a greater focus now on the regulation of virtual assets. So the NDVs are having to work within an international and national jurisdiction framework, which requires much higher standards of good business practice. The NDVs have a huge role in contracting regionally and nationally with companies and corporations and business entities to spend the loan capital that they're investing. All of that requires high standards. That has led to compliance and investigation department growth in the MDBs. And that growth has been very considerable, led by the World Bank and the four major regional banks and emulated by some of the smaller and newer banks. Investigations play a very significant part because there must be a mechanism in each MDB to look at procurement practices, contracting practices, and how money is spent. Given the vast sums of money that are involved, given the international regulatory scheme and national requirements, it has become very necessary for NDBs to have in place adequate investigatory functions to look at issues of good procurement practice, bribery, corruption, money laundering, etc. So that has led to the investigation side, and it's also led to what is a requirement for significant amounts of compliance and ensuring that the contracting and procurement practices meet those high compliance standards. And that, to some extent, has gone further to embracing beyond the minimum legal regulatory requirements an emphasis on business ethics, that business standards should be carried out in a way that is ethical and accountable, and that those involved in administrating the MDBs can look at the efficacy of the business practices and how the monies are invested by those institutions to ensure that within this overall wider international scheme, the MDBs are operating in a way which is desirable, accountable and ethical. Thank you, John. Shunavas, would you agree with John's assessment? Is there anything that needs to be added? What has happened in, in the context of other development banks is that some of these regulatory aspects have come after the establishment of these development banks. The World Bank has got, say, for example, 70 years of history, but the concept of the anti-money laundering has been coming into the existence in the global financial sector landscape only from 1990s. And same is the case with the aspect of integrity and anti-corruption that has come into the common front in terms of the business operations only in the last 30 or 40 years. So what has happened at other development banks is basically their internal procedures have gone into evolutionary focus even before the international standards have been put in place. Now, with respect to NDB, this offers a kind of a unique position in two different fronts. One, because these institutions have went through a lot of iterations in these internal procedures, by the time NDB has entered into the market, we have got already an established standard or a template which other MDBs are following. And there were a lot of international agreements upon which we can bank in respect of our design of the policies and procedures. That's one fundamental proposition which NDB has. 
Apart from that, most of the member countries of the other development banks have been handheld by these development banks in terms of country-level policies and procedures. So the World Bank has to do a lot of capacity building, policy guidance and assistance in respect of the member countries in so many member countries after the World Bank has been established. But by the time NDP has been established, the BRICS countries are already as a part of the G20, have got internationally recognized standards as a part of their national legislation. So this gives us an enormous amount of comfort that we are dealing with such kind of member countries with whom more than capacity building, we need to have partnership cooperation in terms of how these countries implement the regulatory standards. So we are in a unique position to leverage upon this country system as a part of our internal policies and procedures of implementation compared to the other development banks, which have taken some time to shape up even the country-level policies and procedures. I think these two, having a template to follow and having the member countries whose procedures are much advanced by the time this bank has come into existence, has made our task a lot easier compared to the way these functions have got shaped up in other development banks. Srinivas, thank you. I was just going to say, Alice, I think that's very important to recognize that there is no requirement with the newer MGBs to reinvent the wheel. There is a well-worn route map which shows how high standards of compliance and integrity can be met from some of the older MDBs. And they're obviously very willing to share that. The MDBs and the compliance officers and the investigations department all meet regularly at conferences. And that good practice and best international standard is shared and embraced. And the MDBs work, I think, very effectively together to try to achieve the same standards, whatever their regional focus is, or like the NDP, part of the economy that they're trying to target. And there aren't really very many differences there. Thank you, John. Staying with you for a moment to set the scene, before I ask Srinivas to detail the NDB's approach to integrity and anti-corruption policy and the framework in a bit more detail, can you explain the landscape in which the NDB finds itself in terms of those international financial institutions and the cooperation between them? To some extent, all of this began back in 2006 with the requirement for the NDBs to show a more active, a more joined up and a more collaborative approach to combating corruption risks. That led to the International Financial Institutions Anti-Corruption Task Force and Uniform Framework for Preventing and Combating Fraud and Corruption, which was created, long title I know, in 2006. And that really was an effort to ensure that there was a joined-up approach across the MDBs to dealing with issues of corruption, which makes obvious sense. That uniform framework led to what is called the Agreement for Mutual Enforcement of Debarment Decisions, which was a very significant step in the development of the anti-corruption and wider compliance framework for MDBs. And essentially, without descending into the detail of that agreement, the participating institutions, which initially was the African Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the Inter-American Development Bank, came together to say, if one institution has to investigate and deal with an issue of corruption and makes an enforcement or debarment decision, then there should be some core principles by which the other participating institutions recognise those decisions and those sanctions which are applied. This harmonised framework tried to look at sanctionable or prohibited practices which involve fraud, corruption, coercive practices, 
or collusive practices, and they're all fleshed out and defined. And they attempted to apply some minimum standards with the obvious focus that if one MDBE took a stance, investigated and made a decision regarding enforcement and debarment, there would be minimum standards whereby the other MDBs, without carrying out their own investigation and debarment process, could rely on that. So some of those minimum standards required, for example, an appropriate internal authority who had responsibility to investigate and make uh, decisions. They would operate in so doing a written publicly available procedure that required notice to the entity being investigated and potentially sanctioned. There would be an opportunity for those entities or individuals to respond to those allegations. They would employ certain procedural safeguards, for example, a more probable than not standard of proof. There would be a range of sanctions which could be enforced, subject, of course, to questions of proportionality and consideration of mitigating and aggravating factors. If the NDB had in place such a system, which now nearly all of them do, then in effect the participating institutions in this mutual debarment agreement could rely on each other. Without getting into too many technicalities, Alice, there were some further criteria that should be applied. For example, if the decision had to be made public by the sanctioning MDB, the initial period of debarment would exceed one year, and several other procedural safeguards would apply. But it permitted an exception if the decision was not made consistently with the national standards where the NDP operated. So it's not necessarily automatic, but the thrust of the focus of the mutual recognition is that it should be subject to any particular rules or regulation standards which apply where that NDP operates. With that background, how does the NDB approach this more coordinated, targeted enforcement? If I were to take a step back and try to reflect upon the nature of the ventilated development banks, they are primarily self-regulated entities. So there was no external regulation mandating any of the practices and procedures, either with respect to the compliance of any statute or with respect to any of the investigation practices. Given that context, the fact that these big MDBs have joined together in 2006 and they have reduced their intentions into form of an agreement in the form of international financial institutions, anti-corruption task force, is a magnificent step. Now, as John has mentioned, there are three important components to this framework agreement. One, in terms of giving definitions and consistent direction in terms of the concepts. Two, in terms of the key principles that one investigation department has to follow while handling the cases of investigation. And three, in terms of leveraging upon the one institution's practices by the other institutions. All these three have been excellently summarized and documented. And by the time NDB has entered into the space, we have these ready templates which we can follow. And that's how our internal policies, which take into account integrating the anti-corruption, have been built upon. Our core policy, which is the policy of the prohibited practices, further detailed into 
practices relating to anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, and anti-fraud reflects these core concepts that have been mentioned in this International Anti-Financial Institutions Anti-Corruption Task Force Agreement. And in fact, this policy is supplemented internally with a lot of procedures, and these procedures include the way we conduct the due diligence of integrity in a risk-based manner across the projects. And we have got separate standards for sovereign borrowers, non-sovereign borrowers, and public-private sector entities. And the standards go beyond the integrity to also the KYC AML procedures in respect of these entities separately. The other aspect is while conducting these, we do take the help of the technology screening capabilities that the market has provided us. And that makes the procedures almost robust in terms of the size of the operations that we have at the moment. Apart from the due diligence, I think that we also benefit from what I have mentioned just briefly before, a country system, which is basically the leveraging upon the extent of the procedures and policies and national legislations each of our member country has. However, it may be still in the process of learning and evaluation for the bank to say that we are leveraging the country system to the fullest extent. But what we are doing is basically we have developed partnerships with other MDBs like the World Bank, ADB, with whom we have a working arrangement to understand how they implement the procedures in their own context and share some of their learnings for implementing in our bank as well. And in more specific terms, we also interact with other international organizations such as the OECD, who have got a better bandwidth in terms of understanding the nuances of the country legislations. And that knowledge which these institutions like OECD have got in also helps shaping up some of our policies. And in this context, what we can see, the bank's internal procedures and sanctions and debarment have been evolved. The only catch here is that the bank is very recent. The disbursements of the bank have started only in the past few years. And the extent of the process of implementation and monitoring has only commenced recently. Therefore, we may not have any significant cases in which these sanctions and debarment procedures have been tried and tested. But the fact that the bank recognizes these practices is enshrined in our policies. So we do exhibit a process of our commitment to seize international financial institutions agreement. And also, in our procedures, we have recognized the concept of the mutual enforcement of debarment decisions. So policies generally take into account each of the aspects of what practices are supposed to be prohibited or sanctionable, and the manner in which they have to be identified according to the internal procedures, both reactively as a part of the audit and compliance investigations, or proactively as part of the bank's internal control framework. And we do embed the principles of investigation that are enshrined in this international document into our internal policy as well. And as John has mentioned, apart from these principles of investigation, giving certain fair hearing practices and also making sure that the rights and responsibilities of all the parties concerned with the investigation, including the person who made the complaint, against whom the complaint has been made, and also the witnesses to the entire investigation process. All these rights and obligations are laid down in accordance with the principles of investigation laid down under this international agreement. Apart from that, the range of the sanctions and debarment procedures which are mentioned in the international document is also carried forward into our internal procedures. And lastly, I think the beauty of this international agreement is that the mutual enforcement of debarment decisions also should follow a methodical process 
John has mentioned some of the technicalities uh, in terms of the decision being made in public, and it would have been made for an initial department of greater than one year. Some sort of flexibility, I don't say it as a kind of an exception, but some sort of flexibility to also leverage upon the individual bank's circumstances, which may also warrant some sort of an application of these sanction and department procedures uh, suited to its own cases and circumstances. So this document has been made in such a way that while we have got a methodical structure, it also takes into account the nuances of the individual institution. So taken together, I think this will circle back to the point I have mentioned in the beginning. While MDBs are self-regulated entities, the way that we have discharged the self-regulation responsibility in a coordinated manner is fantastic. And that has been reduced in the form of a agreement. And that agreement is serving as a template, not only for the big multilateral development banks, but that template can be used at the policy level, at the procedural level, and also at the implementation of the department decisions level. And that it constitutes one of the bedrock documents, which our bank is also consistently aiming to follow and also has reflected in our internal policies and procedures. Srivanas makes a very good point there, Alice, because it is a very complex world to understand the investigations, first instance sanctions decision-making, and then any appellate sanction review of a decision made. And it's only by doing it can the individual people who are tasked with those get the experience. For example, the IDB's office based in Washington has a long history of investigating and sanctioning, and they're well used to doing it. Some of the newer banks are still in the process of developing and finalizing their institutional anti-corruption frameworks. But by actually investigating, sanctioning and appealing, much will be learned by the newer banks. And it's certainly one of the challenges for Srivanas and his team at the NDB that the more they investigate and do, the more it will become apparent what are the strengths and weaknesses of the system. Because of the amount of financial weight behind these contracts and business relationships that MDBs enter into with individual corporate entities, there will always be lawyers on the other side calling out a lack of procedural safeguards, an unfairness, a disproportionate sanction. So MDBs cannot easily say that they're going to get an easy ride when they embark on the sanctions and compliance pathway. But nonetheless, they must do so because it's essential to good business practice. The more you do it, the more you learn, and that is one of the challenges for the newer banks. Staying with you for a moment, John, thinking specifically about those challenges, given the time that we are recording this, we can't not mention the global pandemic. We are still in its grip. Can you give us an overview of how the MDBs as a whole have reacted to the pandemic and its challenges? Thank you, Alice. I suppose to some extent you can break that down into two different areas. The first is, of course, that many national economies have suffered because of the large level of people who have become unwell and unable to work. The large number of people who died has impacted on some economies more than others. But above all else, national responses have often involved lockdowns. And the lockdowns have hugely impacted on the economies, as, of course, has the lapse in international travel that we've seen. All of that has created institutional challenges in how the integrity and compliance functions work because they are operating in a much more stressed environment and that places greater pressures on the MDBs themselves, the national governments they work with, 
the investigatory authorities and law enforcement agencies they would normally work with, and indeed on the private companies and corporations with whom they are regularly procuring and contracting. So there's a macro challenge, and there's also a much more specific healthcare challenge. What we have seen in national jurisdictions and in terms of MDB lending is how do you deal with such a rapidly changing healthcare environment, which has such significant impacts on national and international economy. So COVID, as it took hold and has carried on into 2021, has created particular procurement and contracting challenges because many of the good practices that the MDB would have built up and the other MDBs have operated for many years are not as easily applicable in a case of emergency contracting and procurement. And nearly all procurement systems allow for what's called emergency procurement. And emergency procurement effectively means that some of the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's is dispensed with because there isn't time. So, for example, if one is procuring ventilation systems or personal protective equipment or other healthcare systems that go to treat the challenges of COVID or vaccination against it, it's not as straightforward as it would be in a normal health or economic scenario. So COVID has required all contracting agencies, whether they're MDBs or national governments, to seek to implement a shortened form of procurement. And that, of course, because you're shortening the process, you're reducing due diligence, you're reducing compliance, has led to significant challenges with poor delivery of service, poor products, but undoubtedly fraud and possibly corruption. This has been a huge problem across the world, and it is more of a problem, I would suspect, for less developed countries because many of them already operate in terms of an legal and institutional framework, which may not be as strong, independent judiciaries, independent law enforcement agencies who are free from pressures and corruption. So that really creates a lot of different challenges. We're too early to be able to say how the MDBs have coped. We've seen a significant uptick in terms of MDB lending to medium and less developed countries. Whether they have done better during this global crisis than some would say they didn't do very well in terms of the economic crisis from 2008, 2009, we don't know. So it's a huge challenge. We don't know what the outcome is yet, but we have to hope that the integrity and compliance and sanctions and debarment officials tasked with dealing with this unprecedented global challenge will be up to the task and that lessons will be learned going forward. Thank you, John. Srinivas, how has the NDB responded to the global pandemic? I think so far in the interaction, one would get an impression that the timing of establishment of NDB has been quite perfect. You have got the country systems which are perfectly aligned to the regulatory requirements. You have got the internal procedures which are templatized by other established multilateral development banks. So all we need to do is to have a cooperation with other member countries. And we need to take the templates from the established MDBs and put into our policies and procedures. So that is appears to be a kind of a rather easy task for NDB. But what has happened within three years of starting up our commercial operations, the COVID has hit. 
And it has changed that impression that everything can be templatized. So the important learning and maybe the opportunity and the challenge that the COVID has presented to the world across and also to our bank in particular is a task ahead which cannot be clearly templatized. The reason for that is most of the financial crisis and the economic programs that we have seen in the past are solely centered around the subject of finance and economics, which is mostly public finance issue. But what we are having now with COVID is that apart from the financial issue, we are also having to learn several aspects of health-related topics. And there is no clear template in terms of how this health infrastructure has to be geared up in terms of making sure uh, that the economists do respond to the financing needs of this health infrastructure in an effective way. So with respect to the NDB, I think that is a clear challenge in terms of helping our member countries to take up this responsiveness of their economic and financial systems to the pandemic. And for this purpose, what NDB has done, it has started a financial assistance of about roughly $10 billion equally to all our member countries, $2 billion each roughly. And this amount of funding that is committed and also dispersed to a large extent is taking into account the needs of the member countries in order to make sure their emergency assistance are completely financed. And there is a social safety net support, which is in the process of needed to make sure that the immediate social impact would be elevated to a certain extent. And also, in the long run, the financing contributes to supporting the economic recovery as well. So our immediate bank's response has been in that direction. Now, what are the opportunities that this has provided to us? I think, one, it has established ourselves as a kind of an important institution that could stand back in terms of need, like initial core mandate is infrastructure and sustainable development. But when the need has emerged, the institution itself has been agile enough to draw down requisite policies and procedures immediately and make support available to our member countries. In fact, the other success factor is that we were able to enter into the market in a timely manner because we have got the foundations already being prepared. And the moment there is a need for the finance, we were able to enter into the market and gather this finance in terms of the bonds that we have issued, the COVID response bonds. And those have been immediately channeled for the purpose of supporting our member countries. And also, it gives us an enormous opportunity to meet our member countries in terms of the procurement methods and also the policies, as John has mentioned, to a certain extent have to be fast-paced and also to be conducted in an expeditious manner. I think the challenges come from this last aspect in terms of how these policies and procedures have to be put to implementation in a fast-paced manner than in usual times. I think the pace is an important issue and the methods in which this pace has to be executed also poses some sort of challenges as we move forward. And as John has rightly mentioned, it is not visible or imminent right now as to where things are could present or in which direction a challenge would emerge. Only as we move forward, we'll get to know where exactly things could have been better and there is a kind of a learning template for future. Added to this space, also added to the complexities of the methods of maybe contracting and procurement, there is another additional challenge I see, which is still continuing, is basically being executed in a remote manner. So most of the procedures and policies in the previous rounds before the pandemic scenario, most of these things would have been done in a face-to-face meetings. Implementation would have been face-to-face. There could be project monitoring and evaluation and implementation on a face-to-face panel. But a lot of times in current pandemic scenario, most of these things are organized clearly. I think this is a huge learning opportunity at one side. Also an enormous responsibility that is 
in terms of how do you manage these kind of implementation and monitoring in a remote and a virtual manner. I think this is one of the important challenges that we are going to have ourselves. So apart from the pace and the methods, uh, I think the way in which these are being handled virtually poses certain challenges to the MDBs. I think these are the three key challenges that we are exposing ourselves to in the context of the pandemic assistance. We know that there are such kind of risks that may exist, but how they manifest, we only need to wait into the future to see. you've mentioned the challenges of remote working due to the pandemic and you spoke about the NDB's adoption of technological advances in order to further its policies and aims. How have the NDB used these technological advances to assist in the fight against corruption? So I'd like to make a step back assessment in terms of the NDB's adoption of technologies. I laid one of the important foundations of NDB's existence is on the technology, though not necessarily to the anti-corruption environment. So NDB has taken an important technological strategy to make a build entire the NDB's infrastructure in a cloud environment. So even before the pandemic has come, and even as a new multilateral development bank that is getting set up, this strategy has been a brilliant strategy because this has allowed a kind of an agility and also the flexibility in the NDB's working environment. The decision to make most of our resources cloud-based is one of the important technological foundation for the bank as a whole, not necessarily to the integrity and the anti-corruption department. Even before the pandemic hit, as I mentioned to you, most of the work in terms of integrity and anti-corruption in the BRICS countries uh, is also nationally mandated legislations and also the procedures are well established in the countries. So as a part of the initial engagement with our member countries, what we also tried to see was to see how the technology is being leveraged by the member countries because the extent of the technology usage by the member countries also makes a lot of comfort in terms of our work, in terms of leveraging the country systems for the process of integrity and anti-corruption. So towards that direction, I think in 2019, we have come out with a, a concept uh, called as finance, technology, and integrity, which we call internally as integrity, uh, combining these three names. And what we try to do is to start reviewing the technological advances the member countries and the institutions in the member countries have been following and some learnings of these institutional advances can also be translated as a kind of capacity building processes for one member country to the other member country but to that extent having to position ndb as a technology institution in that process what we're trying to do is take some case studies of the member countries are the institutions in the member countries like china for instance which has used a blockchain technology for the purpose of generating an electronic invoice-based payment to reduce the frauds associated with value-added tax implementation. And those case studies have been brought into the forums like OECD annual conferences, where we invited the people to explain those case studies to the other member countries, Brazil, which has its National Development Bank, BNDES, Brazilian National Development Bank, which has used distributed ledger technology, the digital tokens, for the purpose of monitoring the way the grants that are received by the BNDES for a specific purpose, have to be monitored. And also the most information has to be shared with the public in a transparent manner. So these are the sort of studies which our member countries have been exploring and also at a government level. So what we are trying to do is to create a kind of a platform 
whereby the learnings of this case studies this has been started in very baby steps like we started announcing the call for essays in terms of the people can share their experiences so every year we launch this call for essays at the time of the international anti corruption day and also we are creating institutional partnerships whereby these learnings are disseminated at an appropriate time to the other member countries and two of them are very important one the institutional partnership that we have with the the regional fatf style body which is the relation group on money laundering where three or four member countries are also the member countries of the eag group and it is an observatory eag and together with the support of eag we have conducted certain capacity building workshops for the financial intelligence units in terms of how to use technological advances in addressing latest technology related crimes and also in terms of the artificial intelligence applications for the financial intelligence programs and the second institutional partnership is with the international anti corruption academy and since the beginning of this year we have been trying to see how covid corruption and crime are trying to go together and what are the ways in which the investigative efforts have to use more open source and also how they need to respond to these challenges thrown up by this remote environment i think this is another important aspect we are working with iata and iata has delivered a workshop together with the ntb to the law enforcement agencies and anti corruption officers of the bricks member countries and this partnership is only going to continue and we are going to have some of these case studies released in form of uh, readable publications to the member countries and these two partnerships both with the eag and the iaca helps us in terms of maintaining uh, our role as a kind of a capacity building support to both the financial intelligence units and also the anti corruption agencies of our member countries but as i said these are only baby steps because we don't know what are the typologies as it in terms of the corruption and the covid or we don't know the type of money laundering there are like early development of this typologies but we need to continue to maintain this dialogue with the law enforcement and also the financial intelligence units because as the time ripens into the future we'll be there in terms of using some of these tools and techniques for effective handling of these situations thank you shrinivas and john from your external perspective what are some of the risks and some of the benefits which might be seen by the ndb or indeed other multilateral development banks in adopting these technologies i think we're really at a moment of change and ndb certainly have benefit by technological changes in their continued fight against corruption and some real challenges for them the entire world of delivery of financial services and banking is in a state of significant change and flux the increase in virtual assets and fintech is hugely impacting on our traditional view of what banking is and in as much over the last 30 years institutions involved in detecting corruption and bribery will look at suspicious activity reports from banks will be able to trace assets from bank account to bank account often owned by international business corporations that task of tracing money and detecting beneficial ownership of bank accounts is going to become much more difficult as virtual assets start to take over from traditional finance and banking the financial action task force is already well aware of that and there have been significant amendments made to the 40 recommendations to combat money laundering and terrorist finance in bifatec it will be interesting to see how mdbs respond to that it's not all negative however because there are aspects of that technology which in fact make the detection of corruption or fraud or bribery easier it's beyond my technological understanding but i am told for example 
distributed ledger technology is much easier in some ways to be able to trace transactions and assets and those involved in it than traditional bank transactions. So there are pros and cons. There is the role of artificial intelligence as well, that AI can be used in a much more efficient way to detect suspicious activities or improper conduct, which is much more efficient than having an individual look at how procurement, contracting, banking transactions have taken place to try to detect whether something went wrong or involved some form of bribery and corruption. So a time of flux and a time of challenges and risks, but also potential wins for the MDBs. Thank you, John. Srinivas, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think this is one area where each of the MDBs also need to increase their cooperation because a lot of discussion at this stage is happening with national and international standard-setting bodies. Uh, But I think that this is one area which I see in the years to come where even the MDB partnerships also going to help the national and the international authorities in setting their standards. Because as John has mentioned, the virtual assets are not only shaping up the commercial banking activities of the remittance world. In the near future, you could find the proliferation of these new technologies even in the development banking world. So I think there is a need which has already been started in certain MDBs. But the way we have seen these international financial institutions, anti-corruption banks, was has come in 2006, there could be some sort of an institutional or an inter-MDB understanding together, which will lay down some of the nuances of using these technologies for the development banking and the role the MDBs could play complementary to the national and international standard setting bodies. So that is an important area of work which has started in most bilateral discussions and certain international events, but a methodical approach to the way we have reached out to the 2006 agreement. This has a kind of a potential topic which MDBs could converge and lay down self-regulatory standards around how these technologies could influence the development finance as the world has been knowing till date. Great, thank you. Unfortunately, we're approaching the end of our time for this episode, so I'm going to ask you, John and Srinivas, to come up with a last message for our listeners. John, if I can ask you first. Thank you, Alice. It's been fascinating to listen to Srinivas because the NDB is a fascinating NDB. And I say that because it, unlike many others, doesn't have this regional approach. It has this BRICS model. And that comes with fascinating and exciting opportunity, but also some challenges. Because if, for example, the general approach is to have regional banks the region-specific nature of the NDB has created a certain coalescing of cultural, education, legal, and regulatory standards. With the NDB, one doesn't necessarily have that. And there are, for example, marked differences between the legal standard and the legal system of India with, for example, Russia and Brazil. So getting a coalescence of thoughts and approaches, cultural, ethical, common. I have no doubt, listening to Srinivas, that those challenges currently are mastered and will continue to be so in the years ahead. And Srinivas, your final word for our listeners. If you think about it, every aspect of the financial services sector globally in the recent past has been subject to what we call as disruption. The disruption initially to their business models emerging from the crisis the global financial crisis of 2007. And the COVID has come as a health shock to many of the countries, leading to certain readjustment to the economic and financial policies of the countries, which also mean 
readjustment of the business models of the financial institutions. And the third one is the connecting technologies, uh, which have made the people connecting much easier different parts of the world through the technology. And that has made the financial systems business models much more vulnerable to disruption. The one area of the financial services which has not completely been subjected to this disruption is the development banking. So while the commercial banking has underwent the disruption, merchant banking has underwent a disruption, global remittances industry has underwent disruption. But still, if you see, think about it, the way the practices of the development banking are being followed is still a secluded state, which is away from the part of this disruption. I don't think this will continue for long. And some of these disruptions which are happening elsewhere in the world, in my opinion, in the coming years, will also percolate down to the development banking and the development banking institutions as such. Now, how quickly these institutions realize such kind of a disruptions into the development banking model and start talking about it and start preparing for that is one of the important challenges that we are going to witness in the years to come. I think that description to the development banking model is the last leg of the entire global financial landscape to be said as underwent a complete transformation. We are in the partial transformation. Now, the only leg that is left missing in terms of the transformation is the development banking. Maybe by the time we reach 2044, we'll have a new Bretton Woods kind of an institution, which is going to take up a completely transformed global financial system with the participation of the, these multilateral development banks, once again, leading the new set of uh, global financial landscape. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giant series, where we are joined by the representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.